Welcome to the Out of Privilege podcast featuring Dr. Byron Burkhalter, where we will talk about issues of racism, white privilege, and the role they play in current affairs. Byron earned his doctorate in sociology from UCLA and has been focused on issues of race, biracial identity, whiteness, and multiracial political coalitions in U.S. history for more than 30 years. He has taught at the university level, spoken at large public rallies, and published numerous pieces on these issues. He takes an historical and sociological look at the systemic racism that the United States in particular is battling today. I'm Genevieve Haldeman, and I'll be your host. In an earlier podcast, we talked about whiteness as a political coalition. However, the census data shows that white as a category will no longer be a standalone majority of the U.S. population by 2042. In anticipation of that, political strategists have been working to weaponize the changing demographics of the country and weaponize the insecurity that generates among whites to try and maintain power. In this week's episode, we talk about what this type of racialized strategy means for this year's election and why it is perhaps more worrying for the election in 2024. Take a listen and let us know your perspective in the comments. So, Byron, we recently did a podcast talking about how whiteness is actually a political coalition that was brought together to amass and maintain power. There's evidence now that whites will not be in the majority uh, in a number of years. I think the data is 2042, so a little ways away, but there is evidence that whites will not be a continuing majority What does that mean for the political environment that we're in today? It could mean a couple of things. And I guess I need to distinguish between what it means just demographically, if you just accept the demographic numbers. Whiteness, if understood as a political party in this country, has expanded as necessary in order to get a large enough coalition to maintain power. This is part of what begins to happen with the integration of Catholics and other now thought of as white European groups into what we consider white people from a time and when that was not the way it was understood. And so this is a political party that can grow itself. As it recognizes the demographic changes, the definition of who counts as white can become an issue again and whiteness might expand. Now, I would suggest fighting against that and towards something else. And, and the other thing that the research brings out is the understanding, being presented with the information, that whites will be a majority of the company, a country, but in a minority status, which is to say they'll still be the biggest group, but they'll be less than 50% of the country. That information has an effect on people who identify as white. It, it brings out an insecurity in them. And what we're going to see, obviously, is that's going to allow politicians to use that insecurity to their benefit. The GOP, and I, I don't remember exactly when, but they have really relied on that white political party to win elections. Um, they had something called the Southern Strategy. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how that has helped them along the way? So just to sort of pick a spot to begin to talk about it, I want to start with the Goldwater uh, campaign against LBJ in 
1964. Not the campaign, but the results of that election. Goldwater gets blown out of the water. This is after the Kennedy assassination. The country comes together. Basically, Goldwater wins his home state of Arizona. And then, interestingly, five states in the South. I think it's Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina. And that's it. LBJ takes everything else. It is a wipeout. Except, of course, for the political operatives who noticed that those southern states flipped. Kennedy, in 1960, and you know, um, I would look at uh, Doug McAdams' work on this, Kennedy was actually not the most liberal on race or on civil rights in the 1960 election. Nixon had a perfect voting record on civil rights going into the 1960 election. And people, of course, have forgotten the liberal consensus that sort of had parts of the Democratic and Republican Party very close to each other. So Kennedy actually wins the South because he's a Democrat in a time when those Dixiecrats were part of that coalition. But with Goldwater, it flips. And all of a sudden, the South votes for the Republican. And the political operatives recognize that. So when you get to 1968, Richard Nixon now, because he wants to win, employs what they call the Southern strategy, which is whatever coalition he could bring from the West and whatever sort of liberal Republicans, um, some working class Republicans he could bring from the Northeast. He was also going to play towards the, the codes of segregation in the South. And so what this looks like is, I think one of the things I recall is Nixon saying something along the lines of, there's nothing wrong with the New Deal. And I'm, I'm very much paraphrasing right now. There's nothing wrong with the New Deal because the New Deal taxed the few to give to the deserving majority, the deserving working class majority. The problem that Nixon then says is that Democrats now are trying to tax the deserving, hardworking people, and they're trying to give those tax dollars to undeserving, lazy Americans who will not work. And so Nixon starts to bring about the two Americas, a deserving set of white Americans whose tax dollars are being taken and given to non-working black and brown people. And that's the Southern strategy. It's a way to appeal to, to sort of those working class whites in the Midwest and the Northeast, that sort of notion of independence that comes along in the West and the segregationist of the South. And that becomes the Republican strategy to this day. Was he that blatant in terms of calling out the black and brown people? Or how, what was the code that he used to get them to understand that that's what he was talking about? Let me say two things about it. One, segregation is the foundation for the code. So when Reagan uses the code of the welfare queen in the 80s, he doesn't have to say black welfare queen. He says, from Chicago, driving a Cadillac. And that's how you know. He's in Philadelphia, Mississippi, and says, I support states' rights. And it's the location, because that's where the civil rights workers, three civil rights workers were killed, that lets you know what's going on. When Nixon says, from the hardworking to the undeserving, he can already use the conservative 
Um, and here I'm talking about sort of the National Review conservative arguments that are already out there, knows he can tap into that, knows his audience is aware of those arguments, doesn't have to use racially explicit terms in order to get it out there. But because of that Dixiecrat part of the Democratic Party already ready to give you the reinterpretation of slave days as these, were, these black people were all lazy, we had to keep them working. And then that sort of new National Review, Northeast liberal notion of still black and brown people as not being real Americans who understood the sort of independence and hardworking spirit. So he didn't have to come out loud and say it. His audiences already knew it. Over the course of the subsequent elections, there has been a point where the Republicans, while they're still getting the majority of the white vote, are not winning as a result of that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So I think the point at where you at least got some of the Republicans in the party making an official statement of, hey, we have a demographic problem, is after Romney's loss to Obama in 2012. So one of the things that goes on with that is, is that um, I think... Uh, of those who voted for Romney, 90% are white. Of those who vote for Obama, 60% are white, which means 40% are not white. And that's not far off the demographics of the country. You know, that's a lot closer than 90% uh, white. And so after, I think it's Michael Steele, who's head of the RNC, but they commissioned an, uh, what they called an autopsy, which said, uh, hey, the demographics of the country are changing. Our anti-immigration... Southern strategy is bound to lose eventually. The demographics are too strong to deal with it. And what we should do, what they really emphasized was, we should reach out to the Hispanic population. They're the fastest growing minority. Uh, there is some religiosity amongst them, some conservativeness. We don't have to go too far from our principles, and we can expand the party. So that was the idea of the Republican Party sort of moving away from a Southern strategy and towards a more inclusive strategy. I think the current administration decided to go a different direction. And, um, you know, would love your take on how or why they didn't follow that advice from Michael Steele, who, by the way, is black and was chair of the, the Republican National Committee. Why did they go a completely different direction? What was the thinking there? For the candidate, you know, he's sort of a one-trick pony, and this is the trick he knows. So I don't know for him if it was necessarily as thoughtful. He was building his political identity in the prior eight years uh, on Obama not actually having a birth certificate that would show he was an American citizen. And that was getting him a lot of play. And he recognizes when he has an audience. So there's that part of it. There's also the idea that it's not... The, that candidate in 2016 doesn't need a long-term view, isn't worried about 2042. He's worried about himself and in the short term, and all he really has is a short game. There's very little mid-game or long-range sort of game um, in his arsenal. What he intuitively knows and what some of the people in his campaign really want to do is mobilize, energize, weaponize those white voters by telling them this is the last election where you will be the majority. If you don't put a stop on 
immigrants coming into this country, and if you don't put a hold on black and brown people already in this country, you will lose your political power forever. And so instead of reacting to the demographic change, the idea here was to weaponize the demographic change in order to bring white voters in. And while they didn't win a majority of white voters, they actually did really well with some groups that had voted for Obama eight years before because those voters felt that call to white identity and heard that their way of life might be slipping away and that this might be a last chance to take it over. And for some voters, it was a big call, and they were like, yes, we're full-throated for it. But for other voters, they thought, maybe. It brought them farther along than even they thought they would go along. As we go into this next election, they're clearly continuing that divisive strategy and trying to stoke the fears of white people potentially losing something. And I'm I'm struggling to see how that is going to allow them to win. If Romney could get such a large percentage of the white population to vote for him, how is it that if whites are still a majority that they can lose? I would go back to some of the research back in 2014, and I'll talk a little bit about this in a, in a, in a blog post this week. But what the research showed is that there was a distinction between white Americans who would say, hey, I'm bothered by these demographic changes, and those who would only sort of indirectly indicate that they were bothered by the changes. And so there's a little bit of a, of a code necessary to weaponize the insecurity about the demographic change. You have to be able to make it palpable, allow people to feel it and sense it and, and, and that sort of thing. But you can't make it too overt that they start to see themselves back in what they see as the, 19, the racism of the 1950s, 1960s, and before that in American history, because they do not want to see themselves that way. And so what's happened is, is over the course of the last four years, it's become much too overt. It started in Charlottesville for some certainly with all the videos of black people being murdered by the police and by the administration's responses to those things. My goodness, by children being in cages separated from their parents, gleefully separated, enthusiastically, as the policy itself separated. That's a little too overt. It's not way too overt, but it's a little bit. And so the administration has cost itself amongst even non-college-educated whites. So I think that their strategy of weaponization has not been um, what Tanishi Coates called elegant racism. And so I think that they are in some trouble. But if you look to 2024 with the Republican Party or whoever will be the party of white identity, they're going to recognize that the calibration was wrong in 2020. And they're going to go back to that 2016 strategy. And they're going to try and weaponize it with somebody who's a little bit more elegant, somebody who's much less overt, who goes back to the language that's already there. Because when they've been talking about taxes since 1968, they're talking about the racialization of the public. What I mean by that is that notion 
that there's an undeserving poor out there who doesn't work, who aren't real Americans, who don't understand what independence, perseverance, and hard work are, that are being funded by hardworking white workers, the so-called white working class. Notice that you haven't heard the terms black working class or Latino working class. Those phrases do not exist in the public sphere. You will not find them anywhere. The notion taxes are already racialized. You're supposed to talk about them in a way where you don't have to be overt. When we talk about the public schools and about public school teachers, you're not supposed to realize that that language, denigrating public schools, taking tax dollars away from public schools, and now denigrating teachers, only comes up once you start sharing the school rooms with black and brown kids. In 2024, they're going to go back to a more elegant racism that uses the codes of taxes and public sphere and independence and hardworking and the other code words that still invoke white identity and still get white voters to act like white voters. It's what's coming up in 2024 that we have to worry about. I think what's going to be interesting is after the the four years that we've had of such overt racism and such violence that has has triggered people of all races to to stand out against this, to have the next round of this be more hidden, uh, to go back to that time when it was code worded, and you. You know, it wasn't as obvious. You couldn't point over there and say, well, there's the racism. Will people uh, who are standing up now feel the, the need to continue to stand up, or will they be satiated by the fact that this overt racism that we've seen in the last three and a half years is gone, and, and okay, now that's, oh, it's so much better now. And will they then accept even the, the elegant racism, as you put it, just simply because of the fact that it's so much better than what it is today. Let's start with the violence. George Floyd and watching those 10 minutes, even if you only watch the one minute and 52 second version, that's the thing. It's too overt. The violence has to occur to keep the privilege there. But you can't see it. You can't make people look at it. That's what happened in the 60s with the photographs of the dogs being sicked on the fire hoses, you can't show that sort of stuff and have whiteness maintained because we're all supposed to be, you know, good people. And then the other point is we have broken down into personalities. We're so much more worried about getting that one person out than we are about the 60 million people who thought he should be president. When he ran on... White supremacy. I mean, it was fairly obvious from what he was doing that that's what he was running on, and he got 60 million votes. And even if you get him out of office, those 60 million are still there. The election, even this time, will still be reasonably close, given what's gone on in the last four years. Historically, what has happened is that once the view of violence goes away, once you don't have to see state violence... And if you can show that the victims, the black and brown people themselves are the ones who are violent, then liberal whites will step back down and create a coalition with the whites 
who do respond to white supremacy. And that's the really weird thing here. Like, I have to talk about them as white people, but there are white people who are not responding to their white identity, and we should see those white people as part of our current tribe right now. And there are white people who do respond to their white identity, and we have to think about a community that we can create that eventually will bring them in, but we have to recognize that they are different, that whiteness is a coalition it is a political coalition in that way. And we have to see the people that are already here with us. Now, there's a worry that they will go and recreate that coalition with the supporters, the current president's supporters. What I'm suggesting is, is that we have to create a multiracial identity based upon a multiracial community where we live with each other and come together and feel that as the identity from which we act instead of having so many people feel insecure about a coming demographics change, which is only important if the Hispanics that are growing in the country, I don't know if black Americans are growing in the country, I think they might be a little bit, Asian Americans, certainly Indian Americans, if we could think about them as part of us and not part of them, then the fear of the demographic change goes away. It's only because we see non-whites as them that there's any reason to have fear at all. Once they are part of us, once we see our commonality, once this is our community and we have values that we bring together and create together, then the Southern strategy then the dog whistle of race of, of white supremacy and then the fear of a different of a demographic change is irrelevant and doesn't work what we have is until 2024 to begin to create these multiracial communities that's how we're going to fight the fire next time of all the differences that the population of the United States has amongst itself why has race become the dividing factor on a political level that is so polarizing to such a wide range of people, to those 60 million people? Why is race the issue and what is driving those fears? So the way that, it, that the country is set up, race works. Race delivers. You, you have to keep that in mind. People don't just keep going back to race irrationally. They go back to race because race has material consequences. And not just material consequences, but within a racial narrative, we make sense. We understand what's going on and we're part of something larger. Now let me, let me be a little bit more specific about that. If you go back to New York in the 1840s and you take... Um, a Jewish neighborhood or an Italian neighborhood or an Irish neighborhood, you will find that there are women particularly in those neighborhoods who, because of their role, don't necessarily leave those neighborhoods. The people that they know are Irish. That the people who are getting jobs there are getting jobs from somebody of their own ethnic group. They're going to schools and churches with people of their own ethnic group. Because they're in an ethnic enclave, their interactions are within that ethnic group. So now, your marriage partner, 
your relationship with God, your ability to get and maintain work, and your standing in the community are massively important. And so you feel that ethnic identity. You feel it as this thing that is larger than you, something that contains you and that you're within. And so you act with that ethnicity in mind in almost every situation of your life. Now, the same thing happens with racial identity. Once you come into whiteness, your privilege, the segregated neighborhood you live in, the segregated schools you go to, the segregated office place that you're at, they've all got these little networks within them. And that's, those are your friends. Those are your colleagues. That's who you eat dinner with. That's who you know. All of this, this status, comes from your racial identity. Now, for some within whiteness, you probably have enough money that you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about the social status part of it because you've got enough of an economic base that it's sort of a little bit different for you. But there are a lot of people in this country, especially now, especially as we do this, we're still sort of sheltering in place with COVID-19, people who don't have much of the economic security, for whom that social status is the security that they have. And they're sensitive to it. You start ringing those bells and blowing those dog whistles, they're going to hear them as their way of life is on the line. And it works. Now, there's a set of policies that have been in place since the beginning of the country, including the Constitution, that have made it where race works and race delivers. There are elites out there that at different points have gotten together, in their particular states in particular, and created systems where race matters, race delivers. How long you stand in line to vote in this country is going to be determined by your race. How many years you live on average is determined by race. Everything in your socioeconomic status uh, correlates really nicely with race. Zip code is destiny. There are massive studies showing that zip code is destiny. People go back to race because race works. Race delivers. So Byron, let's come back to this year's election. Are you concerned because of the overt racism that that has been happening for the last three and a half years, that that's going to mobilize the right more than ever before to come to the polls and um, potentially help Trump secure re-election? And is, you know, what would you say to the left as we go into this election about what to do? You know, probably like most people, I have my more confident times and my less confident times uh, concerning the election. I'm not so much worried about the mobilization of the right. I've never considered the far right, and by that I mean people who want an you know, ethno-racial nationalist state. Um, I've never considered them the big problem in the country. I've always felt like the big problem in the country were those that see themselves as not wanting a racial state, who actually do a lot of things that make them complicit while they maintain that moral background. So I'm not as worried about the far right being mobilized. And so as I watch this administration, what I would call overly weaponize, white fear, 
I'm not really worried about the election. I think that the losses in many groups of whites for the current administration in the polling is accurate. And I don't actually think that they can be elected. I do think that they could be installed. If you don't think about it as an election, but as a transfer of power, I think that that's where the fight is actually going to be. And to be honest, what I think is that Biden will be elected president and there will be a transfer of power. Um, I don't think that that will be elegant. My concern is with those who want an anti-racist future putting too much into the election where the loss of the election is catastrophic and winning the election is nirvana. And I feel like this is what happened in 2008. I think that we elected Barack Obama and having solved the nation's problems went about our business. Meanwhile, his majority, I think, in the House gets wiped out in the midterm elections. So what I would say to those that want an anti-racist future, whatever happens on election day, we have four years to build a strong enough community that we've built trust in a multiracial coalition. Now, young people are doing it right now, and they are showing us the way, but we have got to work very hard to make connections between our differences, appreciating those differences, not not smoothing them over, but loving those differences and seeing those differences as a part of what we consider us. And we have four years to do that. If you relax after election day, regardless of the outcome, we're lost in 2024. They're not going to make the same mistakes and they're not going to have the same salesperson as they do this year. And it's really close this year with a salesperson that's not that good. So what I would say is, buckle up. We've slept way too much of our lives. It is time to work. And not to work on the person that we put into the office, but time to work on ourselves, our relationships, and the communities in which we exist. The clock is ticking. Thank you, Byron. We clearly have a lot of work ahead of us. I appreciate your time today. Good talking with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Out of Privilege podcast. Please subscribe on your podcast platform or sign up on outofprivilege.com to get updated on new episodes when they're available. Let us know what you think and feel free to share on social media. 